relative. You know, there are sales leaders, for example, since we're talking about that, that they just have different definitions for what they think good is versus great. Someone who thinks somebody's great could just be good in someone else's eyes. It just depends on who you're asking. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Ralph Barcy. Ralph's the Global VP of Inside Sales at Trey.io. And Ralph's one of the more respected voices in modern sales, a mentor to numerous young sales leaders. And he just happens to be one of my favorite people to talk with about numerous topics, uh, sales, books. Uh, he's an incredible reader. So we're going to talk about a wide variety of things today. We start by talking about the great books that we're each reading right now or have recently read. And Ralph has some really good recommendations for you. And then it leads us into a conversation about how much responsibility sellers have to take for their own development. Now, there's a burgeoning movement developing called self-directed coaching. In other words, individuals taking responsibility for their own coaching. So Ralph and I dig into this whole topic, and it's important because you know, at the end of the day, no one cares about your career and your success more than you do. So you have to ask yourself, what are you going to do about it? We also dive into Ralph's four pillars of standards of sales excellence, process, proficiency, professionalism, and performance, and what these mean in terms of how we enable sellers and how we enable managers. And this is a fascinating discussion. You'll definitely want to check out. Now, forget to Ralph, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of review. Okay, thanks. Let's jump into it. Ralph Barcy, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Andy. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, it doesn't feel like we've known each other forever. It does. Thank you for saying that. The feeling's mutual. Right. And how many times have we actually seen each other in person? I think once, if <laughs> I think not once. twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's people in life that you meet, you think, you know, we could just talk about anything forever. True, and, true. And we may do that today. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it may not be about sales, but we're going to talk forever. <laughs> you know, I've uh, often likened life to, uh, you know, rooms full of tuning forks. And when you walk in, you know, you're set to the same pitch as maybe a few others in the room. And uh, you'll only resonate with a few uh, where others won't even know you're in the room. And, right. uh, you know, you're one of the guys who's clicked with me pretty much every single time. So yeah, well, likewise. Yeah, it's 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 yeah. There are those these people you meet in life. It's like, oh yeah, I could spend a lot more time with that person. <laughs> so Same. unfortunately, we're separated by most time by three thousand miles. But whatever. All right. So one of the things we share an interest is reading. Now we talk about books a lot, and when you've got. On your personal website, the list of hundred books people should read. Um, but I just thought, okay, we can, let's start off talking about books we've read recently because I'm sure you've got a bunch, and I've got a number that I've read that that uh, I want to tell people about as well. So, cool. so give me one of yours. We'll sort of trade. Sure. Uh, so at this very moment, I'm reading a book called "The Millionaire Real Estate Agent" by Gary Keller. Ah, Keller Williams, I take it. That's it. So okay. he also wrote uh, The One Thing, which is a fabulous book. Yes. It introduces what's known as the domino effect. Maybe we could talk about that later. But uh, I just like his style, his approach. And I'm, I'm a nonfiction fan. I like business. I, I like reading about leadership, sales. And uh, one thing I, I've loved about Gary's books and books of this nature are they 
they don't avoid the topic of mindset. It's always at the forefront of the book. And I think it's so critical to write about mindset, talk about it. And this is just one of those books that just nails it. Yeah, well, I think I think when people hear mindset, and I know I'm sorry for this, is you know, they tend to think about motivational speakers and and so on, which you know, I'm I like some of that, some I don't like, uh, you know, sort of the self-help type thing. But but for me, you know, mindset is also curiosity. That's right. And you know, for for me, that's that's been my primary way of navigating life. Yeah, it's being curious, inquisitive, you know, uh, wanting to grow and develop, you know, hone in on certain skills and competencies. I think you're right. It, it, it falls into that same umbrella. And and was just having a conversation with somebody right before we got on is is resilience. You know, again, as I think is another part that's for me maybe the top two, you know, characteristics perhaps you want to have in sellers is curiosity and resilience. Without question. And uh, attitude, a great attitude. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to hit more rough patches than not. And, you know, you've got to have that, that purpose from within that's driving you to uh, just pick yourself up, try to, try to uh, gain traction and momentum. And that requires attitude. Well, I think it's one of the things that you can learn in, like, from sports. And I, I'm always sort of a little leery of sports analogies and sales because I think they're overdone at times. But, <laughs> but, but the fact is, you, know, and you hear baseball, professional baseball players talking about this. Generally, they play 162-game season. Can't get too high, can't get too low. Because if they got amped up for every single game, they'd be an emotional wreck by the end of the season. Mm, I love it. Yeah, And it's just you have to have this – yeah, but – they take losses hard. I'm sure that eats away at coaches. Why I never want to be a professional sports coach, but yeah, you got to bounce back. And and they're constantly trying to master their craft. I mean, they go out and do batting practice every day. They you know pitchers you know practice uh, you know various drills every day as well as pitching multiple times a week when they're not pitching or throwing multiple times a week when they're not pitching. It's like yeah, they're working on constantly working on their craft. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, did you, Andy, ever read the book uh, by Jim Collins, Great by Choice? Uh, yeah. Well, I read Good to Great. I'm not sure I read Great by Choice. Uh, it was the follow-on to okay. uh, Good Good to Great. But anyway, I'm bringing up that title because he introduces the 20-mile march in that book, which is, yeah, you never get too high, never get too low. You stay very consistent day by day. Uh, are you familiar with the fable? I, I could tell you in a minute. It won't take too long. So let's say, you know, you're in San Diego. Yes. Let's say the two of us are standing bare feet in the water on the coast of San Diego. And we decide, you know what, we're going to get to the northeast corner of Maine in, uh, you know, as fast as we can get there. And I set out for the northeast corner of Maine and I go 50 miles in one day, then 10 the next, 30 the next then none, the next, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, if it's raining, I'm not doing anything. If it's sunny outside, I'm going as far as I can go. Right. Where you, on the other hand, no matter what happens, you're going 20 miles. And the next day, you're going 20 miles, so on and so forth. Well, by the time I get to the northeast corner of Maine, you've already been there like three months. Because you were even keel. You, you, you knew where your thresholds were and where your limits were on the high part and on the low part. And you mm -hmm. never surpassed either one of them. 
and you know you were steady Eddie all the way through, and it's very similar to that. It's just grinding it out every day. Uh, I'm a drummer, so it's going over the fundamentals and the rudiments of drumming over and over and over again to polish the chops and, to your point, master the craft. Yeah, and you bring to mind a favorite quote of mine, which I found, I think, in Forbes magazine in my 20s. So, you know, about 100 years ago. And um, it was a quote from, at the back of Forbes, the back page was always full of quotes and other things. And um, it was from Paul Tillich, who is an American philosopher, theologian. And, I, and this struck me. And I, I cut it out, and I think I have the original still somewhere. It's on a refrigerator for, for a long, long time. And the, and the quote was, to the point you just made, is the awareness of the ambiguity of one's highest achievements as well as one's deepest failures is a definite symptom of maturity. Mm, the awareness of the ambiguity. Right. Love of one's it. highest achievements as well as one's deepest failures. And I, that just stuck with me. And I, that's really been sort of a guiding principle for me throughout my life, my work life in particular, is, is yeah, it's all <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. What does it really mean, right? Exactly. To win a deal or to lose a deal. You know, it's, not, you know, it's not a judgment on me as an individual, but also it's just keep it in perspective. That's right. It doesn't define you as a person, you know, the, those events, whether they're great or not so great. Uh, also, it it kind of behooves you to detach almost emotionally and kind of see yourself as objectively as you can so that you can learn from the successes and the, and the losses. Uh, and you could take those learnings to teach others, you know, pay it forward. Yeah. That's the way I see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, a book I read recently that I really enjoyed... Um, was by one of my favorite authors is a guy named Michael Bunge Stanier, who wrote a book called The Coaching Habit, which to me is such a marvelous book. It's really it's a great sales book. When when he takes you through with his seven questions that you ask to coach somebody, yeah, it's the same questions you'd ask if you're if you're working on a deal, working with the, talking with a customer. Mm-hmm. But he wrote a follow on book to that called The Advice Trap, and again for managers. Uh, it's talking about be humble, stay curious, and change the way you lead forever. And and it's talking about you know how do you how do you avoid you know displaying your knowledge as opposed to helping somebody mm. find an answer to their problem, right? And you know, he talks about what he calls the advice monster. We all become. We want to make recommendations. We make suggestions as opposed to following the questioning habit uh, to enable people sort of to say, oh yeah, well that's what the problem is, and this is why it's important to me and yeah, you could maybe help me do this, but this is why, you know, this is what I've learned about how to how to address it. Let's let's get into that a little because f- first of all, I'm those are two books I now have to buy and yes. read. That's number one. Number two, is it suggesting or is he suggesting rather that we're uh, we're sharing advice and guidance based on the answers to questions that we've asked first? Well, no, not advice. Monster is basically. Yeah, aren't asking the questions, right? I mean, they're it's coming from a position of making it about you as opposed to the other person, right? Uh, which yeah, you know, I think is a common failing of managers. And and secondly, is is you are you there to identify the problem and solve it for somebody, or are you there to help them solve this problem? Mm-hmm. You definitely want to teach them how to fish. Yeah, and in Michael's books, I said, I just lay it out so clearly, so. Uh, 
Yeah, both and the coaching habit I've been raving about for several years now, and he's he sold a ton of these books. I mean, it's it's uh, amazing. But but I'm sure the advice trap will be as successful for him. Well, I've noted them both, and uh, they'll probably be in the mail within the next 24 <laughs> hours <laughs> because I do love reading, and I, I I appreciate you even bringing up the whole topic of books because I do love them. Yeah. Well, I, I figured. I think I'd calculate. I and I wrote this recently in a post, but I think during the during the first what, two months of the shutdown, or month and a half, two and a half months, has read thirty-one business books and like eighteen novels or something like that. I mean, it's just—I mean, it's I sort incredible. of read. Yeah, it's a little faster than I normally read. But you know, if, if I'm doing a couple hundred interviews a year on this podcast of a lot of people written books, then yeah, you read a lot of books. Yeah, you just devour them. Yeah, well, it's fun. I mean, another one I read recently is really interesting. And he'll be on the show. We've interviewed, but we held off on the publishing the interview because uh, the book got held up for publishing because of the pandemic. Hmm. But by a professor from Wharton, uh, Jonah Berger, the book called The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. And another excellent book. Um, and actually, as, as much as about not really being persuasive as much as about how to engage other people in ways that don't erect barriers to change. So, you know, as he said, everybody has a persuasion radar or persuasion resistance, I think as he called it. It's, yeah, how do you, how do you engage? How do you find that common ground? How do you find that middle ground, you know, the set of shared experiences perhaps that enable you to talk with somebody who maybe has a completely opposite point of view from you on something? Right, right. And he gives a, a great, several great examples about uh, how this happens and, and uh, yeah, I, I some from the political arena, even because you know we talk about how polarized we are as a society these days. Well, how do you have conversations if you're polarized? And he gives some great examples about what people are doing: canvassers going door to door, you know, finding common ground with people they're talking to that that uh, they you might think from the surface have nothing else to share. I think it's beautiful. What great timing for him to be publishing this this title. Yeah, and and also very sales oriented. I mean, he has a great quote toward the end of the, the book, which I love. He quotes this uh, behavioral scientist, Kurt Lewin, who once noted, if you quote, if you, tr- if you want to truly understand something, try to change it, unquote. <laughs> he said, but, but Berger goes on to say, but the reverse is also true. To truly change something, you need to understand it. Ooh, deep. And that, that, that should be on the wall of every salesperson in America. <laughs> Deep. Yeah. Uh, it, it reminds me of seek first to understand, then to be understood. Right. Stephen Dr. Covey. Stephen Covey. That's yes. right. Yeah. Um, so good. Yeah. Another one that's on, on my list. I'm, I heard an interview with uh, Dan Heath. Sure. Yeah. Heath Brothers, but he's got his new book, Upstream. Yeah. Um, Was that uh, the Made to Stick Brothers? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. And I'm with so you. This is a this solo book. And. Um, yeah, I remember hearing him on the uh, Armchair Expert podcast, which is my mm-hmm. favorite favorite podcast. And um, yeah, you, it's about systems thinking. It's about you know understanding how to solve problems. And and there's a great quote. I remember he he talked about in the the interview, which I went home and looked up as I was running at the time. But and I think it speaks so perfectly what goes on in sales is uh, from. Edwards Deming, who was this you know, quality control guru, sure. Uh, whose quote was, "quote Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets." 
Very true. <laughs> Isn't that true? I'm, I'm writing it down. That's why I'm quiet because it's, so, <laughs> it's so true. I mean, think about it. <laughs> I mean, if, if something speaks to sales processes in spades, that is it right there. <laughs> That's the one. And it also, it, again, reminds me of, uh, you know, systems over goals. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Got to be dialed in with systems and processes if, if you want to get anywhere sustainably. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that's something that's always, when I talk to so many people in sales as I do and, and, you know, live in that world, but it's like, you know, we have processes that people follow, especially in sort of the SaaS world that to my way of thinking, don't produce great results in general. Right. I mean, I think abnormally low close rates and it's not true across the board, but it's sort of there out there. Right. Yeah. And it's like, okay, what, so our answer is oftentimes is you know if we 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 know what our conversion rates are all the way through the funnel and we know that if we put a certain number of stuff or crap as I like to call it in the top of the funnel we'll get X amount out at the bottom. That's right. And so so the answer to growing is put if we want to grow fifteen percent we got to put fifteen or thirty percent more crap into the top of the funnel <laughs> <laughs> in order to hit that growth number. <laughs> and instead of saying well wait a second. What if what if we say let's start at the beginning instead of closing one out of every five deals instead of having a twenty percent win rate let's just try twenty five percent win rate what would the impact be on going backwards on every step of our process mm. and I've yet to run into a CRO that says oh yeah yeah let's look at it that way right. I'm sure there are, must be somebody out there but it's like let's start there yeah those are the outliers. Right. Let's let's look at systems. Let's look at our system. Let's not just take it for granted. This is the way it has to work. Well, we, um, you know, we tend to measure. We've started at least measuring uh, our teams on their adherence to process because it's that important. And so, how do you do that? Uh, well, on my team, we have what we call standards of excellence. It's four pillars uh, or four P's, rather: uh, per- performance, process proficiency and professionalism. And uh, in the process column, on a monthly basis, uh, we allow our reps to do a self-assessment and rank themselves five to one uh, in categories that are beneath each of those headings. Uh, Five being, you know, they're just exceptional. They're experts sought out by their peers, uh, where one is the complete opposite, where we're constantly managing them uh, they're pretty close to not having a clue of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they'll self-assess and then uh, the, the leaders will assess along with them. And then they'll, they'll come up with an overall score, which essentially ranks them among their, their colleagues for a given month or quarter. And what's really, really good about this is specifically for, let's take sales development reps, most, if not all of them, are aspiring to become sales salespeople. They want to be AEs at some point. And hiring managers in subsequent roles, whether it's in the field organization or otherwise, can take a look at the patterns over time of how well they did in process versus how proficient they got over time and how they evolved as, as representatives of the company and the offering you know, uh, how well they did in performance and are they carrying themselves professionally to discern whether or not this is someone who's going to produce sooner rather than later once they're hired into this new role. Uh, and, and it just so happens that I'm 
I'll come back to center here. Sure. Uh, that that process happens to be one of those key pillars. So we'll take a look at you know their their CRM maintenance or their meeting hygiene, for example, or if mm-hmm. they're adhering to um, the touch patterns that we ask them to adhere to, et cetera. And it, I think it's a game changer. So process and then proficiency. What what do you look at there? Uh, the difference between process and proficiency. Proficiency no, no, and, and when they're assessing their proficiency. What are you? What are the things? Oh, sure. Below that. That heading. Sure. We're taking a look at um, their product knowledge. So we'll certify them in you know, different facets of the product and uh, we'll, we'll um, allow them to self-assess on how well they know it. Uh, communication skills is another. So many times they have to present, whether it's in front, uh, front of a small group or large group. Uh, now it's all online. It's pretty much all on Zoom, for example. How well can they convey the message uh, what what are their communication skills like in that venue? Mm-hmm. Another thing is just time management, organization, productivity, taking ownership of the calendar, et cetera. That's that's what we would measure under proficiency. And what about performance? Performance is uh, the the black and white quantifiable metrics of how are they doing against a monthly or quarterly quota? How are they doing against their activity? Uh, metrics, et cetera, phone calls, emails, social outreach. That's, that's all under performance. And then um, finally, professionalism is leadership skills, their coachability. So for example, if we were to take the five or the seven questions that you mentioned in that coaching book, you know, how well are they, uh, how well are those questions um, reaching uh, the rep mm-hmm. and how are they, how are they applying what they're learning? Um, are they, are they team players? And if so, how, what, you know, what, what can they demonstrate uh, or illustrate in terms of uh, being great team players that, that, that would fall under professionalism. So question about performance. I mean, are you read the same stats that I do? Yeah. yeah. 50% of reps aren't making quota, yada, 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 yada. Yep. Um, is quota still relevant? Wow. Yeah, well, let, let's take the opposite. What what if it what if it wasn't relevant? What if you just didn't have to hit quota? Well, what else would we measure? But performance—that's what I really was getting at with that question. What other things we could? What are you know areas we could measure that um, maybe have more relevance? You know, I, I'm familiar with like Goodhart's law, the British economist who said that you know when a he put forth his theorem. Apparently, it's been proven out with studies and so on. Is is that when a, a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure, mm. because you optimize your process to achieve the target. So you're not really measuring. You know, it's not really become a true measurement at that point. Yeah, it reminds me of John Wooden. You know how he didn't have the UCLA Bruins looking at the scoreboard. He instead wanted to optimize each individual player on his team. Mm-hmm. You know, hold them to very high standards. There was right. no quote quota, you know, that they had to attain, but they had to be optimal in X number of areas, and collectively, they would win. And that's exactly what happened. It was you know sticking to process. So now yeah. you got my wheels turning. Well, because all right, so let's let's dive into this. It's not yeah, the yeah topic it's so ingrained <laughs> in in me my you know twenty five plus year career in sales. It's just always been quota. Oh, come on. You haven't been in sales that long. I have. <laughs> I had a full head of hair, Andy. <laughs> when you started, yeah. <laughs> it's just migrating south. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, one of my 
the things that I advocate for, and I've managed high-growth sales teams using this, is what I call true productivity, which is dollars of revenue generated per hour of actual sales time. Mm-hmm. And for me, that that became a metric that gave me more information to use to correlate what we're doing to what was succeeding, what was working for us. And on an individual level as well as as a organizational level, I, it gave me a more accurate way to sort of calculate what our actual capacity was to sell. Because if you know if we're limited by time, if I know how much revenue I can generate in a per unit of time, it gives me a better sense of okay, what can we really truly do? Sure. And you know, because I always <laughs> am amused, and I tell the story. I was speaking to a group of CEOs of portfolio company of a private equity firm and this was last year and i said well you know i'm sure you're all planning on raising quotas this year yeah yeah we are great <laughs> and we sort of went through them and you know sort of got an average and i think the average turned up to be about 12 percent across these sure. companies i said great i said so let me ask the question so have you all invested to make your salespeople 12 percent better <laughs> crickets right yeah of course so there's like the no correlation between the goals we're setting and the way we're trying to enable our people. Yeah, that's a big, big point. And so it's like, okay, well, we could deconstruct that, but but it's sort of you know true with productivity is is you know I'll ask a CEO or a VP of sales to say, okay, well, on average, how many hours does it take sales actual sales hours from initial point of of contact to closing a deal? No yeah. idea. No idea. Oh, wow, but that's our, wow. that's our that's our limiting resource as sellers, is time. So wow. how can you not know this? Somebody says, I say, well, what's your what's the length of your sales cycle? Two months. I said, no, it's not. How many sales hours did it take? That's the length of your sales cycle. Right, right. Wrong indicators. Yeah. And this is but we're still managing sales by these things. You know, it's sort of like I and I was been talking about this for a long time, but it's but it's sort of like uh it's a reinforcing a opinion piece in the New York Times. Last year, sometime, Dave Leonhardt, uh, great writer, people should follow. And and but talking about why are we still using GDP as a measure of economic productivity? Because mm. the economy has changed so much. Yeah, we're still using these these metrics from the 30s. Yeah, and we're doing this in sales as well. It's 2020. It's 2020. Let's change. So that's why I asked the question: Why quota? If I could measure somebody's productivity and say, I'm going to help you increase your productivity not the quantity of things you do but the amount of revenue you can generate per hour of being you know in, quote unquote in front of a customer well it definitely shines a bright light on our friends in enablement yeah you know, because this is where they can really step up uh, what what you're talking about reminds me of two concepts one comes from mark leslie the sales learning curve mm-hmm. uh, that he published I don't know, 05, 06 in the Harvard Business Review. Right. I read that uh, article. I got to see him present uh, his idea about the sales learning curve at a luncheon hosted by Sequoia Capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, I once worked for a company that was um, backed by Sequoia. So I got that opportunity. And it, you know, basically it helped me put the um, leader cap on and take a look at the ROI that a business expects from an individual contributor. Um, but what it doesn't talk about is the enablement of those individual contributors to meet those goals sooner than later. 
Uh, the, the second concept is uh, Mike Watkins, the first 90 days book, uh, where, he, where which I highly recommend, where he talks about the break-even point where you arrive at a company, for example, as a new individual contributor, and you are a consumer of value. And until you become a contributor of value, i.e. close your first deal, uh, you've not yet hit that break-even point where mm -hmm. that return on investment starts to be shown. So uh, I just think that quota is going to allow to measure you know, progress in the sales learning curve, and it's also going to help measure hitting the break-even point sooner than later. Uh, but it it requires enablement without question. Maybe that's why you know a lot of companies, uh, especially in the enterprise segment, are looking for a lot more seasoned account executives who they don't really have to train. <laughs> you, well, you know what I mean? <laughs> not, that, not that they ever were trained, right? But yeah. yeah right. That assumes, right? Yeah. Correct. I mean, trained is since they have experience. Yes. But trained, trained by life. Trained by life. School of hard knocks. Um, right. Well, I mean, I think that's that's true. But the fact is, you know, there's a limited number of those people. True. Yeah. Right? They are the minority. Everybody wants to hire superstars. It's like, I mean, I, again, always get amused by books. It's, you know, how to hire how to hire superstars, quote unquote. And it's like, <laughs> there just aren't that many of them. I mean, right. and, and so, and this is a, a question I'm interested in your take on this, is when did... When did good become bad? Right? When did it's, good it, become bad? Because right now it's you know we've oh, tell it needs somebody, to be great, exceptional. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. It has to be exceptional. What happened to good? I give me a give me a team of ten good salespeople versus a team of you know ten that are three excellent and seven okay. Right. <laughs> I want good. You'll What's take wrong that with all good? day. What is wrong with good? And yet this has become you know we've. Maybe because we feel the need to sensationalize everything, but it's like, yeah, yeah, reach for the superstars. It's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, you go do that. Yeah, you go do that. Because first of all, superstars, as you've probably seen, is they're contextual. I mean, it, and this whole thing is, yeah, I've been great at these three other companies selling this type of product, and we're coming over here. It's like, yeah, I just don't think that person's going to make it here. Well, I think it's, um, you know... It's it's relative, you know. They're they're sales leaders, for example. Since we're talking about that, that just they just have different standards for what or definitions rather for what they think good is versus great. Yeah, you know, some someone who thinks somebody's great could just be good in someone else's eyes. It just depends on who you're asking. Yeah, I, absolutely, absolutely. I don't know when, though, to answer your question. Good became bad. That's that's a really good question. So let me ask you, who taught you how to sell? Oh, a number of people. <laughs> My grandfather. Well, let me, let, me phrase, let, me, let me phrase the question differently. Yeah. So I'll give you five choices and you know, add them up to 100. Is who taught you sell? Coaches or mentors? That's one. Two, mm -hmm. your peers. Three, your customers. Four, company-provided training. Five, self-development and experience. And I can only give you, I can't say all of the above. Well, they have to, the fraction has to total up to 100. Oh, interesting. Okay. Coaches and mentors would be the, the like 60%. Mm -hmm. I think um, customers is probably a good 15%. Mm -hmm. um, I would say self is 10. Um, 
then peers and then training somewhere in there. <laughs> You're almost identical to me. In, Am in I really? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm 60% coaches, mentors, yeah. uh, customers, number two for me, training last. So, so let wow. me follow, let me follow that up. Cause we we're talking about enablement, right? We were, and here, here <laughs> we both stack ranked it at the bottom. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, if you look at, if you look at, uh, Sales improvement, sales performance improvement as a process, okay? And every process has a rate determining step for how fast the process can go. Is My belief is that we can improve individual sellers' performance no faster than at the rate in which we improve the performance of their sales managers. True. So we're spending $20 billion a year on sales training in the U.S. Hmm of which about 5% gets spent on management training. You know, the average, the average sales, the average manager, not sales specific, the average manager receives their first management training after they've been on the job 10 years. So That's um, incredible. Yeah, that was from a, a book that was just published. I had the, the author, Peter Economy, was on my show. Um, so if we're spending $20 billion a year on sales training, yeah. 5%, shouldn't we flip-flop that? Shouldn't we make it that we spend 90 to 95% of that on training the managers? Because they are this rate determining step by which the improvement of individual contributors is based. Yeah, it's teaching people how to coach. It's teaching people how to lead. And especially if, if you're like me, we learn from our coaches. Absolutely. That's who we learn from. We didn't learn from training. So why are we spending all this money on training? We should make these people, and I'll go a step further. And I don't know, maybe you do this, but I would propose that why don't we just have a position on the staff that are coaches? Why are managers coaches? Why not? Why don't we hire people that are trained to coach? You get me fired up, Andy. That's what I'm, I'm here for. I'm going to go recalibrate some of our job descriptions, and <laughs> <laughs> we're going to probably start steering in another direction. <laughs> Do you want to? I'll come consult. I'll come consult. You can uh, sweet. You can you can pay me with that. But it's yeah. You know, we have to just rethink these things, right? I mean, you look at professional sports teams, and and listeners, you know, those who listen all the time, probably rolling their eyes when I start down this path. Is that is that you look at soccer, which is one of my favorite sports. And by the way, uh, Liverpool, during while we're recording, won the Premier League for the first time in 30 years. Just FYI for soccer fans out there. Did they really? They won. Manchester City lost to Chelsea on the strength of a goal by American Christian Pulisic and Liverpool. Crown champs. Yay, Liverpool. Okay. Wow. So here we okay. go. Okay. You look at a staff of a soccer. They've got like, you've got the head coach, manager, but then they have all these people like performance coaches, nutrition, health performance, mental health, you know, mental psychology, sports, you know, sports psychology coach. You know, these people have specialized knowledge about what they're doing. And we, we, we imbue sales managers with this sort of heroic quality since we promoted them. You know, they must know everything about coaching performance. Well, they don't know anything about coaching performance. Coaching, you know, <laughs> whatever they're responsible for, we assume they're experts in it. And it's unfair because they're not trained in it. So why don't we get specialists in these things? If coaching is so important, let's, let's hire coaches. Yeah, why don't we? It goes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning of our conversation about mindset. 
You know, yeah. you have people who are focused on helping you develop the mindset to be a great competitor, to be a healthy competitor. Yeah. What? And do you ever watch the show? Have you ever watched the show Billions? I have. Yes. Okay. Why doesn't every sales team have a Wendy on it? Right, right. Great question. I mean, we, we know it's important. We know mindset is important. So here's this, the show. If people don't watch it, Billions is about a hedge fund uh, and all the intrigue around it. But one of the key employees is a psychiatrist. Right. A therapist. And when the traders are feeling down, they're off their game, they're done it, they go see her. I mean, <laughs> why why we assume that, you know, since we, you and I at the beginning talked about you know, resilience being such an important quality, why should people be afraid to go ask somebody to help them become more resilient? Yeah, it's a pretty logical move if you ask me. <laughs> well, I've, been, I've been thinking about these things more and more, as you can tell. <laughs> no pun intended, but it's a no-brainer. Yeah, but you just, you know, it's like, okay, maybe you have to be in sales for 40 years to sort of get to the point to look back and say, we're, <laughs> doing, it all, we're doing it all wrong. Yeah, that's where the epiphany usually hits. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> oh my God, yeah, I think, you know, we should, we're just completely focused on the wrong things. Oh, man. Andy, we need to, we need to get this uh, conversation in front of a lot of people, don't we? Yeah, because it's, we have to, we have to be willing to confront and I, you know, the, <laughs> this idea about managers being the rate determining step for improvement for frontline sales managers, that rate determining step is dictated by their supervisor and then by the CRO, CSO, VP of sales, and then by the CEO, because that's, that's where it all starts. You know, we, we are where we are with sales because at somewhere up the lane, they've decided this is okay. I have a question for you. So yeah. let's go back to the ranking, you know, the coaches versus peers, et cetera. Would you, yeah. put, would you put books in the kind of self-development yeah. category? Yeah. You would? Yeah. Okay. Okay. The reason I ask is because I think it could, I mean, I mean indirectly could also fall in the coaches and mentors category. You know, there are specific oh, sure. authors that you follow. Sure. Or, that, listen, yeah. or, or listen to, like your podcast, for example, and you are indirectly a coach and or a mentor to a lot of people. So I think it could kind of go into, sure. you know, it could maybe straddle those two categories. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah. But I, mean, I just, <laughs> you know, I look back on, let's say my own career is, is developing individuals is, yeah, I estimated I probably spent 40% of my time coaching, mentoring individuals, mm-hmm. not, not talking about deal specifics, you know, entirely as them. Right. And, and I know for the people that I learned from, that's, that's what it was like is, you know, I had two people in particular, you know, very, very important early in my career that, that, uh, you know, learned a ton from that, that I'm sure I modeled a lot of what I did, even though I'm not different personalities than I am, but modeled a lot of what I did after them in my mm-hmm. own way. Yeah. Um, and then customers, I mean, I mm. learned so many lessons from customers who are willing to take the time to basically tell me how to sell to them. Yeah. It's the, it's the, um, it's the true representation of the quote, the champion that you have in a deal when, when you've experienced having a true champion in your deal as a, as a seller, you understand how powerful that is. Someone who's very candid with you and mm-hmm. constructive, and uh, yeah, there's no question you're going to learn from those people and get even better. Yeah, it was, it was, 
I mean, I, I told the story recently. It is, you know, I was trying to sell to this one retail chain, and it was pretty early in my career, and and the owner and I, you know, we we hit it off. And I, again, I have no idea why. I mean, I, I said I was 22, 23, and looked twelve. And, um, but, you know, he's entrusting his business to, to me helping him with this decision, but, you know, the order wasn't coming and I was sort of getting increasingly antsy about it and, and perhaps forgetting some of the basics because, you know, we had had this, this, you know, great personal relationship. And finally one day after I'd gone out to see him like the dozenth time thinking I was going to get the order and not getting it, he basically told me, he says, yeah, problem is you want it too much. Mm. And so he, he was holding out on me intentionally to teach me the lesson. Wow. Did you it stop it? you in your tracks? Hell yeah. <laughs> it was right about that same time. I got that, that quote from Tillich. It was like, uh-huh. it was like, Oh, got it. Right. Yep. I mean, I'd done everything right. We'd built the relationship, you know, great connection. And then, yeah, I just want, at the, got to the point where I the order so much that I sort of, you know, stopped asking about him and his family and, you know, the human side of it and so on. And, and uh, yeah. That happens all too often in a lot yeah. of different respects where people are just, they're so wrapped up in themselves, their offering, their company, their company's history, that they just completely steer their focus away yeah. from their, from their prospects and customers and partners, et cetera. It's. It's too bad. And you can see it, you know, as you get older and wiser. Yes. You, you see it from afar. <laughs> it's, yeah. You wince a little bit. Yeah, but at the same time, while we see that and wince, we also think, you and I, since we've been in it for a long time, we're both like, yeah, I don't want to go back and do that again. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no nope. thanks. Nope. I'm good. Did that. Been there, done that. That's right. Thank you. Uh, all right, Ralph, unfortunately, we have to cut it off, but uh, gosh, look, let's not wait again as long. Done. Yeah, I could talk to you for hours, Andy. Would love to reconvene sooner than later. We'll definitely do that. Yeah, I, so I will. So if people want to connect with you, how can they do that? Sure. Uh, best way on LinkedIn, it's uh, Ralph Barsi, B-A-R-S-I. You could check out the blog is ralphbarsi.com. Uh, Twitter is at rbarsi. Pretty simple. Do it. Look for the bald guy. Look for the bald guy. I encourage you to do it. All right, Ralph, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my friend Ralph Barcy for sharing his wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you can listen to this podcast. And if you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd really appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help. And thank you so much also for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.